Well, good gracious, it has been a while since we've been in the book of Revelation, friends, but today we are going to pick this thing back up until we finally come to the end. We are probably going to spend the next four or five weeks getting to the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, we left off at Revelation chapter 17 the last time, and since it's been so long, I mean, it's been almost four months now since we were there, actually maybe even a little longer, I probably should take a moment to bring you up to speed on what we talked about the last time we were together in this book. You might remember throughout the book, there are these series of sevens. There's the seven bowls of wrath and judgment that God has been pouring out in the world. And the picture that was created for us was frankly a familiar retelling of what we had seen before in this book. First, the judgments are described as seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven cups, and finally, seven bowls. And just as there is a repetition of the judgments, there is also repetition of the reasons that the judgments are coming down upon the world. It's as if every time the Apostle John is tasked with describing these terrible events that come with judgment, many of us, we actually have pictured by actual historic events of the first century, more on that later, but still, after every time that he describes the judgments, it's like John wants to go immediately. He wants his readers to hear and understand just why they're taking place, that this isn't some sort of like uh, capricious act of God, that this isn't him just, you know, flying off the handle, but no, that this is earned judgment, that this is earned condemnation uh, for the people that are facing it, and indeed for what the world will one day face, that the judgments are happening for understandable reason. And that is what we're going to be reminded of in Revelation chapter 17 this morning. And so without further ado, let's go ahead and read the passage. I uh, encourage you to get out your Bible or your phone or whatever you're watching this on. Get something that you can read along with because it is, there's so much imagery here that it can be kind of hard to just listen to and pick up all at one time. So uh, with that being said, Revelation chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, it reads like this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, this is the seven bowls of judgment and wrath, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, 
But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The calls, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I ask now that you would decipher this for us, that you would help us see what this says and how it relates to even our lives today. Help us apply it well and thoughtfully, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what in the world are we to make of all the words that I just read? Uh, believe me, I don't blame you if at some point in that chapter you found yourself sort of crossing your eyes and beginning to daze back just in confusion about what on earth was going on. It's understandable. Lots of code here, lots of deciphering to be done. My job is to do the best I can to try and make that happen. So let's first begin by looking at why the judgment is happening in this passage. In the text, we're introduced to the imagery of a great prostitute riding on a beast. What is this woman doing in tandem with the beast? Well, she is depicted as leading the nations and peoples and languages of the world to unite themselves to her sexually. Remember the peoples and nations and languages the angel says is represented by the waters that she is upon. The waters are all these different peoples. So the prostitute is pictured uniting all the world to her sexually. Now the imagery here can be taken both literally and figuratively. In quite a literal sense, it is so often the case throughout the Old Testament that much of the time the reason the people of God, the people of Israel, would get weak and in trouble 
is because indeed they would be tempted to go after idolatrous temple prostitutes or women committed to other false gods and commit sexual immorality with them. That is a picture you can see all over the place. Frankly, much of the time throughout all of human history in all cultures, one of the reasons, the main reasons that people reject God is for the same reason. They want to commit sexual immorality and they want to pretend that God is no longer there to stop them. One of my favorite examples of this comes from the early 20th century intellectual Aldous Huxley, Huxley, who rejected the Christian faith. In a very honest retelling of his reasons for why he rejected Christ, he said, quote this, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, <clears throat> the philosophy of meaninglessness, that is, there's no God, no purpose, no anything behind this, was essentially an instrument of liberation. And the liberation we desired was liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Turns out, folks, not a whole lot's changed throughout all of history. It's always been this way. I know, I know, you're prone to thinking, oh my goodness, look at the things that we see going on in our culture today. Fair enough, it ain't good. And yes, there's all sorts of sexual problems in our culture today, but just be aware, it's not new. It was going on 2,000 years ago. It was going on last century. It's going on today. And so, indeed, in a very literal sense, sexual immorality often is sort of that literal thing that happens to push people away from God. If you want to see great sort of pictures of this, go and look at the Old Testament prophets. But what you do also realize that adultery or sexual immorality is often used as a figurative picture for Israel's unfaithfulness to God as they worship other idols as they go after other gods. Hosea and Ezekiel are explicit about this, for example. So the point is, whoever this prostitute is, and I think we'll find out who it is in a little bit, at least we'll look at some different ideas. One thing we know for sure, she is leading people from all over the place, all over the world to be unfaithful. But that's not all she is doing. She is also said to be filled with blasphemies in verse 3. And she is depicted as being drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs in Jesus. Her and the beast she rides on are making war with the Lamb and his people. Put it all together. Why is judgment coming? Why? Why is this judgment coming? Remember, it's not the capricious act of a God just flying off the handle. No, it is coming because humanity has rebelled against God and has been consistently unfaithful to him. And that is certainly the testimony of the rest of Scripture about humanity in general. Naturally, everyone has cheated on God, if you will. I know, no one wants to talk about judgment. I don't get any kicks out of it. 
I don't enjoy talking about hell or a place that people go where they won't be filled with joy after they die, where they'll have to face judgment for their sins. I don't, I don't like it either. And so sometimes when we're prone to thinking like, well, that sounds mean. First of all, you should know that if you do think that that sounds mean and harsh and, and over the top, you should realize how firmly ensconced in Western cultural thinking you are. Because if you go to other places on planet Earth, maybe even the majority of places on planet Earth, they don't think that that's mean at all. They think it's entirely warranted. So realize when you think that you're showing your Western uh, sort of bias. But secondly, is it really harsh and mean? Let's just, let's sort of go down history a little bit. For thousands and thousands of years, Humanity has thumbed their nose up at God, daring him to do something. And yet time and time again, God depicts himself like a husband with an outstretched arm to his adulterous world. He doesn't have to do this. At some point, he has every right, right to say, that's it, no more, I'm done, it's over. Now, if you're still not convinced of that fact, that God is vindicated in his judgments, then perhaps... Perhaps just a tiny thought experiment will help. Imagine renting a room to a person in your home. From virtually day one after moving in, he literally breaks every rule you have in the house. He is absolutely filthy. He's destroyed every piece of your furniture. He eats all your food without washing a single dish. He pays you no rent. He kills your pets. He sleeps with your family members and regularly tells you that he wants nothing to do with you, wishing you didn't exist at all and that he couldn't wait for the day you died so that he could take over your home. Would you be just and eventually saying, you're evicted, you're out. The answer is obvious. That's why judgment is coming. God is still reaching out to the world with an outstretched arm saying, that is not what I want to do. Repent, turn to me, be forgiven of all your sins. I'll wipe the slate clean no matter how much you thump your nose at me. I'll forgive all of it. Jesus Christ has paid for all of it. Just receive it. But at some point, if the preference is to go after those who would feast on the blood of the martyrs, and to side with those who would be against God's kingdom, eviction is warranted. So that's why judgment is happening. Let's look at who judgment is happening to. There are basically three answers or three views on the answer to this question in modern scholarship when discussing this. And all of them have legitimate reasons. So, rather than presenting to you a definitive answer as to who is being judged in this passage, because Revelation is such a, you know, a confusing book with lots of differing views that have much legitimacy, I'm going to present to you the three views that I think are genuinely possible as we read for it. First, let's address who the prostitute is in the passage. We're told in verse 18 that the prostitute is, quote, the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. 
So, like a prostitute, this city has enticed the world to go figuratively uh, in joining themselves to her by following her ways. And so the question is, which city does this prostitute represent? Most commentators believe that this prostitute represents the great city of Rome, specifically Rome's economic, cultural, and religious hegemony over the society of the day. In favor of that view, from the text is the fact that number, nine, number one, we know Rome was utterly filled with debauchery and idolatry, just like the way the prostitute is described in the passage, so that would make sense. There's a second reason in verse 5, the prostitute is referred to as Babylon the Great. We know that at that time in history, Jews and Christians both often referred to Rome by that sort of code name as Babylon the Great. So it could very well be Rome. And then a third reason is we're told the woman or the prostitute is seated on seven mountains. And it turns out that seven mountains or seven hills is a very well-known geographic characteristic about Rome. So it could be that the prostitute here is representing the Roman Empire, that representing Rome, the city of Rome. On the other hand, uh, many scholars see this woman, this prostitute, yes, as representative of Rome, but not the literal Rome of the time. Instead, they would see this as sort of a description of a resurrected Roman Empire that will exist in the final days of planet Earth. In favor of this view is, well, the idea that at least some of the events described throughout the book depicting judgment seem to be referring to future events and times than when the book was written? Uh, maybe you could make that case, at least from my perspective, with the last three chapters of the book. I'm not sure you can make that case with the rest of the book. And that leads to the third view, which admittedly is held by a lesser number of teachers and scholars, but frankly, one that I find quite persuasive. And that is that the prostitute here represents Jerusalem. And it specifically represents Jerusalem working in tandem with the Roman Empire. And it is the Jerusalem and Roman Empire of that day. Now, why on earth would I say that? Well, let me try to break it down for you. Number one, in these early days of the church, it was true that both Jews and Romans had in fact teamed up against Jesus and against his people. Remember, they worked in tandem to crucify him. The Pharisees needed Pilate in order for them to accomplish the job of Jesus. Remember, the Jewish leadership even went so far as to say that we have no king but Caesar. And especially in the early days of the church, it was the Jewish leadership that rose up most against the early church, often using the authorities of Rome to do so. Second reason I would say that this represents the city of Jerusalem in tandem with the Roman Empire, well, the great Roman historians Josephus and Suetonius tell us that around the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the princess of Judea, where the city of Jerusalem was, was a woman named Berenice. And Berenice was having an adulterous relationship with a Roman general named Titus. Who was Titus? Well, he just happened to be the general 
who commanded the armies of Rome to destroy the temple of Jerusalem at one point. Considering that the text describes the prostitute as, quote, riding on a beast, as one who enticed the kings of the earth to commit sexual immorality with her, Berenice, as representing the corrupt Jewish leadership, certainly would fit that picture again in the first century. Thirdly, the language here in our text has much in common with the way the destruction of Jerusalem is described as happening by historians. Especially when we come to verse 16, where we're told that the beast will turn on the prostitute and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. All those things indeed happened at the destruction of the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, if we go back to the previous chapter, when we're told that there were quote, hailstones weighing about 100 pounds being dropped on the people in judgment. That just so happens to be the exact way the historian Josephus describes the stones that Rome was lobbing at the temple when they destroyed it, even telling us the boulders were in fact white like hailstones. Finally, even though Rome was known for being a city built on seven hills, the fact is actually the same for Jerusalem, built on seven hills. So then, if one goes with this view, then most likely the judgment that John is describing here could either be the final judgment of all time, or it could simply be describing the judgment that God brought against Jerusalem in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple, which is my personal view. So those are the views of the prostitute spoken of in our text. Those are the views of who is being judged in the broadest terms. She represents a city that is hell-bent on leading the nations to idolatry and persecution of God's people. Now, let's briefly turn our attention, because we're trying to answer the who, let's briefly turn our attention to the beast. On who this beast represents, there is far greater consensus among scholars and commentators. It is almost universally believed that the beast represents the political and military leadership of the Roman Empire. The reasons for this are number one, the beast is described as he who was, is not, and is about to rise. This very clearly seems to be pointing to the Roman Empire because it was thought at that time that when Emperor Nero killed himself, that this could be the end of the empire. Indeed, there was a brief time in which a civil war broke out and no one could determine who would be the new emperor. And this would uh, refer to the period in the, the statement as the is not period. But then to many people's surprise throughout the empire, the empire came bouncing back under Emperor Vespasian. A second reason for believing the beast represents the Roman military and political class is because of the mention of seven kings, five of whom have fallen, it says. There is some reason to believe that the five who had fallen by the, that time were the, the first five Caesars of the Roman Empire. John goes on to mention that apart from the seven-headed monster, the ten horns on that monster are ten kings who have not received royal power 
but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. In other words, they're not genuine kings, but they'll have the authority as kings. It's a strange statement, but again, history may help us out here. Turns out, around the time of the destruction of the temple, for a very short time, or the way to the text says it here, one hour, there in fact were ten leaders of the Jewish zealot group that were given power over Judea. It's true. Look up the history. But Josephus reports about these people, these ten kings, so to speak, that they were terribly corrupt and horrible as could be to their own people and to the church. So in effect, though they hated the Roman Empire, we know that about the Zealots, in effect they were working in tandem with the Roman Empire by their corruption. It was as if they had teamed up with them. And what does all this lead to? Well, eventually, through both the Roman Empire's actions and the Zealots' corruption, they turn on the great city, the great prostitute, Jerusalem in this scenario, and make her desolate and naked, burning her to the ground. Again, all of that happened in A.D. 70, just as Jesus predicted it would. All right, so I know I've given you a lot of history. This isn't a normal sermon. I'm, I mean, this is sort of deep dive exegesis history lesson. I know, so you're going like, what? Let me bring me all back here. Who is God judging? Well, if we take the position that the woman represents Rome's cultural, economic, and religious hedonism, then what God is telling us is that one day the idolatrous and libertine ways of the Roman Empire, and indeed the world, will not get away with it forever. On the other hand, if we believe that the city woman, this prostitute, represents Jerusalem, then what John is doing is warning his readers that just as Jerusalem fell in judgment, so too will anybody who persists in rebellion against God. That's the big idea of the passage. So that leads to my last point and the most important point for you today. The one that applies directly to where you're sitting right now, or standing, or whatever you're doing. How to escape the judgment of God. Repent. Turn from your idolatrous ways. Turn from your destructive ways to the Lamb of God who's taken your destruction upon himself at the cross. Receive the forgiveness won for you and never worry about facing the judgment that is coming ever again. The fact that you are still here, the fact that I am still here, means there's still time for you and for me. God is still in the business of reaching out his hand to stiff-necked and obstinate people that would run away from him, thumb their nose at him, rebel against him, and even fight against him. He still is in the business of holding out his arm. As Jesus said, as he came upon the city of Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That might be true for you as you started this message. You may have said, I'm not willing, and yet somehow you got put in front of this 
this message right here and you've heard these words and I say Jesus still calls to you with outstretched arms. I want to put you under my wings. I want to save you. I want to have you as mine. This judgment doesn't have to be for you. And in fact, it doesn't have to be for anybody. Jesus has taken all upon himself. So, we know the judgment is coming. We see and feel the reality of that. Repent. Turn to the Lamb of God who's taken your sin upon himself and be free and declared innocent on that great day. You pray with me. Father, I ask that you would indeed cause all of us to turn every day. And instead of trying to endure the judgment ourselves, look to the one who took the judgment for us, the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Father, we pray the prayer that our Lamb gave us, saying with one voice, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.